Before we start, maybe we could pray together here. Um, all right. Father, just thank you for the opportunity to read your word. pray you would teach us and grow us. And we want to glorify you in all that we do and think and are. I pray you'd help us. We need your help today. We need your help every day. Um, please be here by your spirit. Empower us. Help us. Help us to love one another and to love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to just read the first letter, but before that, I'm just going to give a short review of what we've kind of talked about, the main kind of thrust of Revelation, that overview that we talked about. Um, this is all just a review here, but Revelation was written to these seven churches in modern-day Turkey in the Roman Empire, and John was on Patmos. He was sent there, exiled, because of his faith. And he wrote these letters to these churches at God's command. Jesus uh, appeared to him in a vision. And really, these are from the Lord to these real little churches here in the Roman Empire. And so, first, we try and understand the, their context, what God was saying to them at the time, and then we try and apply it. How does that apply to our lives? And so uh, we talked about how the main thrust of Revelation a lot of times becomes these secondary issues on the outside that whether one's the millennium, which is just in one chapter, or some of these other secondary things when everyone actually agrees on the main points that Jesus is, you could summarize it all as Jesus is the main point of Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus, or you could call it the revealing of Jesus. And it starts and ends with the revealing of Jesus. You get to see this vision of Jesus in chapter 1, and the end is Jesus is revealed to the world, and every tongue confesses, and every knee bows, and, and confesses um, that Jesus is the true Lord. And there's judgment, right? Um, final... Finally, everything is put right, but from the beginning to end, it's about Jesus, whether that's the authority of Jesus, that we should have faith in Jesus, forgiveness in Jesus, praising Jesus, glorifying Jesus, the victory of Jesus over evil, you know, all these things that we talked about and we, as we did an overview. The book of Revelation, when I, when you hear it, I don't want you just to think Revelation, the book, I want you to think, the revelation of Jesus or the revealing of Jesus. Because to really understand what's going on, all these strange passages, we ask, how is this pointing to Jesus? And that's really helpful. And you'll see that in the, in the letters here, the centrality of Christ, who he is, and that that's the main theme here of seeing him clearly and who he is and how that affects us and impacts us. But to start, kind of to set the tone, and this is going to be kind of a theme that as we go through all these letters over the next few weeks, two months, I guess, uh, that I'm going to come back to over and over to kind of set this one theme to go through all the letters. There's a lot of similarities, and there's a lot of differences too, but when you hear this, what is the victorious Christian life? What comes into your mind? The victorious Christian life. You don't have to say it out loud. I just want you to kind of think about it. And the reason I bring this up is these letters, one of the themes that comes through them, apart from just Jesus himself that clearly comes through, is this idea of victory, the victorious Christian life. What is what does it mean to be victorious? And and it I wonder if at the time and for us today, we can take our idea of success from the world, more from the world than from the Bible. And so we're going to look at what Christ is saying to these churches and in some ways I hope reassess or realign if things aren't aligned what God is saying a Christian life is because he's got a clear picture and we want his picture to be our picture because it would be really sad to feel like we're a success and meet Christ and he said, that's not what I wanted from you. Or it would be really sad the opposite to feel down in the dumps to feel like a total failure your whole life go through discouraged and then Christ says I'm pleased with you 
And there's all this encouragement that we weren't getting because we were off in our, in our thinking and our understanding. So we don't want either of those. And to start, I'm just going to give you kind of a story that kind of got me thinking along these lines and an encouragement, a positive encouragement, and then we'll read the passage here. But this, uh, this encouraged me and I think it kind of gives you a little flavor of what I'm going for. So we were, we went for a funeral to Jess's family and I saw something that really struck me and encouraged my heart. It was the most encouraging part of our trip that we took was, um, something you might not expect. One of the Jess's older family members, uh, late sixties or so had gotten this new thing that I was, that was kind of surprising to me. A big tattoo on their arm. <laughs> so you can imagine if you walked in today and maybe Lance had this big new tattoo right across his arm, you might say, wow, Lance, that looks nice. <laughs> what made you want to get this, this new tattoo? And, um, the tattoos, you know, as you see here, it's on the kind of the forearm here. It says Victor. And so I talked to, uh, I was sitting on the couch and had a nice conversation. It turned out to be the most encouraging part of our trip was this conversation about this tattoo from uh, one of Jess's family members. And they just talked about basically they had had cancer and they didn't know if they were going to live or die. And you see a lot of those cancer ribbons uh, and they say survivor on it. And so there's just a lot of self-reflection as you go to the hospital over and over and you're spending a lot of time reflecting on these things and Jess's, um, it was Jess's uncle, so I'll just say uncle. Jess's uncle was just talking about reflecting on these things and thinking about the word survivor, survivor that came up so much and kind of an identification with other people. I'm a survivor or whatever. And, but then got to thinking about the Lord and thought I might not be a survivor. I'm not guaranteed to be a survivor, but I am guaranteed to be a victor. And so he actually got that big tattoo on his arm to remind him whether I live, whether I survive or I don't, whether I live or I die, I am a victor in Christ. And it was really encouraging just to hear. I, yeah, actually, it would be, <laughs> I wish you could hear it in their words because that's all so much better. But just talking about that, that Christ, what Christ has done on the cross is real. And that's what matters most and how that's getting him through. And just, it was really encouraging to hear all the different stories of how many times he's gotten to share the gospel, uh, from his, this tattoo and to share, share with people just the victory in Christ. And yeah, it was really encouraging. Um, but I think it's a good picture of this section here. So let's read together and we'll circle back around to that. Let's read this section, just this first letter. And what I'm going to do is, because this is the first time we're going through the letters and they're all kind of the same format, I'm going to read a verse or two, stop, say this, each one of the letters has this element or most of the letters have this element and then read a verse or two and just kind of introduce it that way. 2-1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Stop right there. In each one of the pictures, it's each one of the letters, it starts with a picture of Jesus. From this vision we read in chapter 1, we went through all those elements of Jesus and kind of what they symbolized and how they relate to the Old Testament. And... That's what each one of these letters starts with is some piece of that image from chapter one of Jesus. And Jesus is the one writing the letter. And it's saying one aspect that each specific church needs to hear to focus on about Christ in their present circumstance. And they relate. You can kind of see how they relate to each one of the churches specifically. So that's the first thing in each one of those. You see how this is the book of the revealing of Jesus. That's what each one of these letters starts with is a picture of Jesus specific to each one of the churches that they need to focus on. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. 
I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Stop right there. The second thing is an I know statement. I know. And this is Christ saying he knows what's going on in the churches. And in most instances, this is a praise to them. He's saying that I know, and he commends them. It's a commendation. And each one of the letters has this. And then the next verse here. Verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So the next one, the next piece, that is not in all the letters, but is in most of the letters, is a correction. A correction. Not every single one of these letters has a correction, but most of them do from the Lord. Next element. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'll stop in the middle of the verse there. A call to hear. And I want you to notice as we, as what he said there was it was a, it was a call to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Not just to your church. So, God wanted each of the churches to read all the letters, to read what was going on in the other churches, and to know, and to apply, and to understand. And so that's something important to see here, but to listen, a call to listen. Second half of this, uh, verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, or literally, to the victor, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This last element to the victor or to the one who conquers is a promise from Revelation 21 and 22. It's a promise of the vision we see at the end. Some aspect of what it's going to be like when Christ returns and everything is put right. Hope in that. And something to look forward to. Some aspect of salvation applied to each one of the churches. And so we'll... I'm not going to spend too much time on this because we're over and over and over we'll see these. So to start with this particular letter, we're just going to start with an overview of Ephesus, the city that this particular letter is written to. And to really understand what is going on here, the best way we can would be to know what was going on in the context because it is pretty striking what Christ writes here to this church in Ephesus, knowing kind of the background. So first I'm just going to give a short background on on this city that this letter was first written to, and then we can try and apply that to, to our lives as well. So this is Ephesus here. It's the closest city to Patmos that comes first. A messenger carrying these letters would start here, take a ship across uh, the sea here, or bay, I'm not sure exactly what you call it, but not not too far, and then come to Ephesus. And so... Ephesus was a very large city. One, you know, there's arguments between historians about how big and how important different cities were, but at least one said that Ephesus was as important, uh, was second in importance only to Rome and the Roman Empire, and same with its size at this point. Others disagree on that, but regardless, this was the biggest city of all these letters. It was a big city. It's by far the biggest city of each one of these churches that is situated in these seven cities here in in Turkey. It's quite large. And I'll just read you a short section to kind of get a feel for what was what Ephesus was like here. Those in Ephesus found themselves surrounded by symbols of civil religion. Augustus, the first uh, emperor, had allowed Ephesus to build two temples in his honor, and Domitian had named Ephesus the guardian of the imperial cult, making it the foremost center of emperor worship in Roman Asia. Ephesus, in fact, hosted a new cult of the emperors that had openly that had opened only about half a decade before Revelation was written. Ephesus honored Domitian at the Olympic Games just shortly before the book of Revelation was written. Nor was the emperor cult the only prominent element of paganism here. Ephesus was known for the worship of Artemis, 
as referenced in Acts 19. All these elements help make the various features of the book of Revelation relevant to them. And so, just a couple of slides here to kind of give you a feel. This is the one of the, these open amphitheaters in Ephesus, and it holds 24,000 people. So that kind of gives you a feel for the, the size of the, the, you know, more than all of Kirksville easily could fit into this one amphitheater, which is still there. This is modern. It's ruins now, but it's still there today, which gives you a feel. Um, so huge. It was a huge city. Somewhere between 150 to 200,000 people at this time is their estimates. Some say more, but uh, there's some disagreement there. And like I read to you, Ephesus had a big emphasis on worship of the emperor. Worshiping the emperor wasn't as common in Rome. It flourished farther away from the center of Rome that you got uh, early on in the history of Rome, and later on it kind of worked its way inward. I think part of that is if you know a guy that lives down the street, it's a little bit harder to worship him as God than if you've never met him or seen him, and he's some distant figure. Here's a uh, a statue of the first emperor, Augustus. It, it probably looks kind of familiar to you because a lot of these depictions of the Greek gods that we are familiar with, they wanted to, the emperors wanted to identify themselves with that. And so they would wear, you know, some of the things you might see like on the, well, the Sistine Chapel is painted later, but those images of the gods, the traditional images, they would have their statues made to look like that and to wear the same type of, you know, clothes and, and wanted people to identify them as a god. This is an arch dedicated to, to Augustus in Ephesus that's still standing today. Now, one feature that is really amazing and prominent in Ephesus at the time is that the, there was a temple to the current emperor Domitian at the time of Revelation. And you can see that this looks huge, <laughs> right? You see this big building down here and then this other building up here. It looks bigger than it actually is because this is kind of a hill. This building is built into the in, inside of a hill. So it's not a building on top of a building. It's like a building built into the side of the hill. So it looks like two huge buildings or like one building. Um, and so this actually didn't go back that far. It just looks really impressive. But this is very, very large. And you can imagine the culture and the setting you would feel and the pressure you would feel if your whole city is extremely proud to be the city where the emperor is has decided to have his temple built where people worship him. And it was a big honor. It was such a big honor to them that when Domitian died, they didn't want to lose that status and people Domitian was actually assassinated. And because people were upset at him. And so they didn't want a temple to Domitian because people were mad at Domitian and didn't like him so much so that they killed him. But they didn't want to lose the, the status of being the city with the, with the temple to the emperor. So they switched it to another emperor. They kept the temple and they still called it the temple to the emperor, but then they switched it and said, Oh yeah, now this is the temple to Vespian, not Domitian anymore, uh, which was actually his, uh, dad. Uh, because people liked him better. So anyways, that kind of gives you a feel for how proud they were of this. That even when Domitian went out of favor, they're like, we can't lose this, this status of being the city that worships the emperor, you know, the, the guardian of this emperor worship in this part of the world. And so it was a really big deal to them. Just to give you a feel for how big this is. You see, uh, this is a, to present day ruins of, of that. And you see there's a little person right there. You see that little statue? I don't, know, I don't know if you can see it, but it's, it's a, that is zoomed in view. I don't, hopefully you can see it. It's, it's a statue of a person and you can see that that little person is right there. So that kind of gives you a feeling of the size of this temple. And then you can see the hill in the background that I kind of described how it was a temple built into the side of a hill and then a second kind of building on top. So it look, the picture looks a, makes it look really, really large. But again, there's a hill here. So 
Okay, I'll stop right there. You can turn this off. That's this. That's all I'm going to say on the background of Ephesus. But now let's talk about the letter. Let's start with their commendations, and then we'll work our. We're, we're going to go kind of out of order, but I'm going to try and do it in a logical way. The commendations to the church here in Ephesus, they're diligent. It said this twice. They're diligent to work. Let's just read this again. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. They're diligent workers. Second, they're patiently enduring difficulty and not giving up. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. They're pressing on. They're not just diligent workers for a short span. They're over time. They're continuing to press on. They're not giving up. And then the final commendation, kind of a large summary would be, they're opposing evil. Sin is distasteful to them. You cannot tolerate evil, it says in 2.2. Kind of under that heading, they're doctrinally clear as well. I mean, they have, you have to know what sin is. You have to be clear. Uh, they're testing things both inside and outside Christianity. Uh, it's not just the emperor worship that they're not falling into, but it's people that are saying they're Christians coming. Like It talks about the Nicolaitans here. And it also talks about false apostles. And so how they tested them and, and were able to discern, oh, these aren't real. This isn't real. So this is a picture of a church that's that's diligent to work in their outward actions. They're diligent workers. They're not just for a short time, but over a long period. And they don't like sin. They hate sin. They can't tolerate sin. Whether that's external or whether that's things that are coming into the church from the inside, from people that are saying they're Christians. And so this should be, it seems like a very positive thing. And it is. These are positive qualities that Jesus values and he's commending them. And you could imagine how you would feel if you had a word from the Lord and he was commending you. You wouldn't want to give up then on those things, would you? You would feel encouraged. It's like, yes, it's been hard to press on, especially in light of how difficult the culture was and how hard the culture pressed into this worship of the emperor. And the larger the city, just like today, there's even more opportunities for sin and for um, debauchery and some of those things that would go on and I didn't really get into that, and I'm not going to go into too many details because eventually we'll get there. But needless to say, worship of the emperor was not some sort of um, holy type thing. There was a lot of festivals involved with it. You might think of today Mardi Gras, right? Where it's like Mardi Gras is just French for Fat Tuesday, which is this party they throw right before Ash Wednesday, uh, which is supposed to be to honor the Lord, uh, this whole period of Lent. And it turns into something the opposite, right? It turns in, it becomes notorious for not honoring the Lord, for being something that dishonors the Lord that's notoriously sinful. And you can kind of think of some of these cultic worship as like that, as pretty, pretty bad. Um, and so they're resisting here and it's not easy. And they're clear on their doctrine. They're searching the scriptures. How would they test these false apostles or know that the Nicolaitans, that, that they aren't doing what's right? Well, they know the scriptures. They understand and they're discerning. Uh, this is, this is doesn't align with what God said. And not only do they know that and are they able to discern that, they're applying that and saying, no, we're not going to be a part of this. We're, we're rejecting this. And Christ commends them for it. We don't know exactly 100% for sure what the Nicolaitans taught. The, the best guess we have is from the 2nd century. Irenaeus says that the Nicolaitans, the character of these men is very plainly pointed out. This is in the 2nd century, so not very long after John wrote this. As teaching that is a matter of indifference to practice adultery, to eat things, sacrifice to idols. Um, and so it was kind of this, Immorality. They were people who were saying, hey, we're Christians, uh, but, you know, it's okay to be immoral. And 
you kind of, we'll get that later on. The Nicolaitans come up in one of the other letters and you see that connection there. We don't know 100%. This again is not found in the scripture. Uh, this is someone from the outside, so they obviously aren't infallible, but it's the best guess we have. And regardless, we can take the same point from it, which is that those at Ephesus were diligent in trying to be against sin, to understand the Bible and to apply it to their lives, to not only to honor God in, in their thinking, but in their actions, and to apply that to the church. And those are all good things. But it wasn't just commendations said to Ephesus. There were corrections. And a pretty big correction here. Let's jump in here to verse 4. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. It's a big correction here. He's saying not only is something off, it's got to change. It's got to change. Or I'm going to remove the lampstand. And again, the symbolic nature of that is the lampstand is the church. The church is the true Israel. The lampstand was kind of a picture of Israel in the Old Testament. You know, the menorah that you can imagine those seven uh, branches coming off um, that was in the temple made of gold. But regardless, this is a serious correction. And what is the correction? It's a lack of love. A lack of love. Now, some translations say this differently. Some say your first love. And some say the love that you had at first. And if it said your first love, you would immediately think, oh, this has to be their love towards God. Because that's our first priority, right? Is to love God. But it, the way it says it is the love that they had at first. And so there's actually a little bit of debate whether it's talking about love towards God or love towards people. Because it doesn't say your love towards God. It says the love that you had at first. We don't know exactly, but here's what my position is going to be, and I'll try and defend it here from the Scriptures, is that we can really take it either way. Um, we don't know 100%, but I'm going to apply both to our lives and to this church here because it's pretty clear from the Scriptures that the love of neighbor and love of God are so closely united that they kind of go together. And I'll give you some verses on that. I'll just read here several verses and then I'll kind of synthesize it. Matthew 22, 37 through 40 says this. Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. James 1, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Jesus said to them, this is John 8, If God were your father, you would love me. Christians have to love God. There's no category for a Christian who doesn't love God. That's not That doesn't exist. Christians love the Lord. We love him because he first loved us. That... That's it, period. Hard stop. So we can say for sure, if there's a lack of love towards God, that's a big red flag. But not only that, we see that in the Bible, the love of God is related to love of neighbor and loving your brother. I'll read you a verse here from First John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been bored of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Listen to this. Listen to the connection here. If anyone says, I love God, 
and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Really, these two are inseparable. If we really say we love God, we are going to love our brother. Um, the Bible says it's they're going to go together. It specifically says you can't say I love God and then hate your brother. That's not how it works. God is love. And so I'm going to say that either way we take this, whether you would think they're struggling with loving God, their love to God has grown cold, or whether it's love to neighbor, they're going, they go together. And I think we can apply either one and both uh, to them and to us. Now I want you to think about this situation, how they're diligent, right? It's, it's kind of surprising when you hear the commendations to hear the correction. They're diligent. They're resisting. There's these all these outward press, pressures, but they're enduring. They know the Bible so well that they can discern some of these things that the other churches are struggling to discern, these errors. And yet, there's a big lack of love. And Christ rebukes them on it. One thing we can learn from this about church, this church here in Ephesus, but also we can apply it in our present day, is that you can be a hard worker. You can know the Bible. You can be diligent to press on, be doing good works, and be lacking love. Think about the Pharisees in the New Testament. This is what Jesus says in Luke 11. Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup. But inside you're full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, you tithe mint and rue and herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And so here's diligence, right? They're diligent to do these things, and yet the internal is missing. And it's just a warning here to this church. Outwardly, it seems so good. It seems like, wow, you're literally right next to this big temple, the most powerful uh, temple in all of this area. And there's so much pressure to worship and you're not bowing in. You're not giving in. You're pressing on. You're knowledgeable. And yet, the inside is missing. Love towards God and or, and or neighbor. It's a warning that it's possible. That it's possible to have these things and be missing the internal things. And just think about the testimony of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus throughout His life. He was always pressing into the heart. God wants our hearts. God wants. Does God want us to work hard with our hands? Absolutely. Does God want us to know the Bible? Yes. But God wants us to do those things out of a heart of love towards God and towards those around us. Okay, let's summarize the same thing in a different way. It's not enough for a church just to be against the right things. It specifically says here that they hate these negative things. Verse 6, Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans. That's good. And he said, Jesus says, Which I also hate. There's things we need to hate. There's things we need to be against. Sin. Bad doctrine. we got to be against these things. And yet, is that enough? It's not enough. Jesus is saying, repent. You're against all the right things, but you're not for the right things. You don't have this heart of love towards God and others. And so it's a warning that we could be against all the right things. We can be diligent, knowledgeable, not compromising. You know, here's our culture out here, and we're against all the right things there. And yet, we don't love. That's not right. That's not what the church is called to be. The church is not a place that's primarily against negative things. We're united by the things we're for. Does that mean we're not against things? We are. Absolutely. But we don't want to be just united about all the things we're against. I'm going to give you a kind of a controversial example here. Okay, Just giving you a warning. 
Okay, our culture, there's some negative things going on. There's some things that we can be against. Uh, there's things that are in the news all the time. You can probably think of some uh, transgender stuff. Is it right to be against, you know, just even seeing the, you know, the suicide rate for these kids um, that are wanting, you know, wanting to change their, say they're not a boy if they are, and things like that, and just the mental anguish of that. You can just see through the statistics. It's right to be against that. Well, let me ask you this. What about love? How much have you prayed for transgender people? And there's some serious trauma and suffering and stuff going on there for somebody to be in that place. We want to pray for them, right? We don't want to just be like, oh, we're against this, which we are. I mean, I'm not saying we're not. We love people and we are against things. There's a lot of things we're against. But what about love? Love towards God. We want to love God. Speak the truth. But what about these people? Do we pray for them? Or is it just people we're against? Same for abortion. We're against abortion. It's right to hate abortion. Abortion hurts and kills babies. And it hurts mothers. We hate it. But what about love? Are we praying for ladies who've had abortions, praying that they would find forgiveness in Jesus, that they'd find healing in Him. And we want both. It's similar to what we said. I think I gave this example a while ago. Politics, this is particularly relevant to this case, that this church and Revelation was written in a time of the culture kind of pushing pushing things. And the church is standing against it. But Christ is saying, don't just stand against it. Don't just hate hate the right things. You need to love. And so for me, and this is not a rule, like I'm not going to hold you to this rule. I'm just telling you how I question I ask to reflect on myself is, do I talk more about the things I don't like about politics or do I pray more? And if it gets way out of balance, I just think I, I need to talk less. I need to pray more. Do I talk about Biden more or do I pray for Biden more? And I want it to be at least balanced, right? I want to pray regularly. And I don't want to be just talking, talking, talking. I want there to be love. Right? Every single one of these things that we're standing against behind that is a sinner that Christ can save. We're not just opposing them, we love them. It's both. And so, we don't want to grow weak in our love for others. But really, again, this falls out of a love for God. Think about the vision here of Jesus that that He is wanting them to see who He is that starts this letter to the church in Ephesus. The words of the holder of the seven stars. The words of the walker among the seven lampstands. Who is the person that's writing this? It's the person that's in the midst of the churches, that's there with us. This is present continuous. Like, that's why I said walker among the lampstands. It's not just this person in the distance, in this distant past, God up way in heaven. It's like God back then and the tense of this is present continuous and even now is walking among the churches. He's present. God, Jesus is present here with us. Why do we need to know that? Why did the church in Ephesus need to know that? Because it fosters love towards God. God's not just some distant person that runs the world that we just want to know facts about. We can know Him personally and He is here. Do we have communion with Him? Do we have a love relationship with Him? The same God that died for you loves these people in this fellowship and in each fellowship all over the world. God is present. If God loves the person in the seat next to you, what about us? Doesn't that foster a love towards others? I've used this example before, but I'll use it again. Think about meeting Mary when Jesus, when she was pregnant with Jesus. And imagine if you knew, wow, God Almighty is right in there. This person has God inside. <laughs> like, would you, would you say, 
would you treat them differently? Maybe some sort of respect? Like, oh, I don't want to be harsh. I don't want to say something mean. I don't want to, I want to honor them because God's honored them. Because God's right here with us in a real way. That's true for every Christian. Every single Christian, not only is Jesus walking among us, He's the Spirit of God is in us. That God is near. Every time we're with a Christian, God's right there with us. And that gives us a reverence for another person. It's like, wow, God Almighty is dwelling inside of you. God loves you. God's with you. That fosters love. That fosters patience, humility. Does that maybe does that person have something to teach me? Yeah, of course. Like God's in them. And so we don't know exactly what's going on in Ephesus, but we can imagine, we could say it's definitely possible that they were doing all the they were opposing all the outward things, but there wasn't love in the body. It's like, yeah, we're doing all these outward things, but I don't I mean I don't really care about the person next to me very much. The main thing is these, you know, resisting the culture, the pressures of the culture. I don't need to worry about loving my, you know, person that I meet with. Is that right? That's not right. Why? God. God loves that person. God's here with us among us. And if God loves him, we, we can love him and we should love him and he'll help us to love. And so we don't want to, again, to summarize just this particular section we don't want to get to where we hate all the right things but we're weak on love towards god or towards our neighbor god's right here among us if you're a christian god's right here with you and if you look to your left and to your right god's in these people every true christian I'll read you a quote here. Our love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth. And our truth grows hard if it is not softened by love. I'm going to read that again. Our love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth. And our truth grows hard if it is not softened by love. We talked about we don't want a two-dimensional Jesus where we just take just a certain piece of Him. Right? Jesus is all love. Or Jesus is all wrath and all justice. We want the full Jesus. The real Jesus. And that means He's going to challenge us in a bunch of different areas. And this particular letter seems that for them, they had the truth part down. Right? He doesn't, he doesn't say they need to read their Bible more. They need to know more. They need to... Be more discerning. He's saying you're doing that. But you need love. You're growing weak in love. And there's other churches where it's the opposite. And we're going to read those. But we need both. We want to know God. But we also want to love. Love God and love others. We want both. We don't want to let go of either one. Think about Jesus. Think about this example here in Luke 19. We have the woe to the Pharisees, right? Think about that. Where he's saying woe to you and he has all these criticisms. Judgment, right? It's like, you guys are not doing the right thing. I read some of those where he's say, he's calling them graves. And on the inside, they're full of dead men's bones. That's the one side. That's truth. He's discerning. But listen to this. Listen to this other side. Luke 19. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon the other because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who, who sold there. We see this three-dimensional Jesus here. We see Jesus correcting them. 
and then weeping over them and then correcting them again. There's love, even for the people he's got the harshest criticism towards. He's weeping. He's wanting them to repent. And so that's the way we should be. We got, we want both. We want to be like Jesus. Okay. So let's circle back around, take all these things, ask some reflection questions, and then apply them to our life. So, this particular point, what is a victorious Christian life? I want you to notice something really, really important. Because what if you're sitting here and you feel like, man, my love has grown cold lately. And you're like, well, I'm not a victorious Christian. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. Listen very close to this. Listen to this verse. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, or to the victor, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He's offering this to this church. Why is he saying that? Why is he saying that if they're the victor, they're going to have eternal life? Is this symbolic what, what he's saying? Eat the tree of life. They're going to be in the midst of the new city of Jerusalem. Be with Christ and be there forever and ever. Why is he saying that? Because they had it all figured out and they were doing everything right and they, they just, they had it all balanced. No. Because he's offering that to the one who repents. He's saying, if you repent, right? Repent and do the works you did at first. So here's what I want to point out. And this is for all the letters. The victorious Christian life is a life of hearing and repenting. You want to be a victorious Christian? Just say this. Christ, whatever you tell me to do, I want to listen. And if I'm wrong, I want to repent. And Christ will be there to forgive you. The victorious Christian life is dependent on the real and living God being among us and correcting us. And we we hear and we repent and He forgives us. He's He's saying to these people who weren't a perfect church, who didn't have it all figured out, who didn't live their life perfectly, who... He has some serious issues. He's saying, yeah, but if you repent, I'm going to forgive you and you're going to eat from the tree of life. If you want to be the victor, what do you do? You lean on Jesus. One, to be with you, which He is. To correct you when you fall short and that you can repent and find forgiveness. That's good news, isn't it? The victorious Christian life, we could summarize it this way. One way, we could summarize it as a life of continual repentance. Right? We're just gonna, are we gonna, are we gonna be perfect church? We're gonna go through these seven letters and, and, and then our church is gonna be perfect? Nope. Am I gonna be perfect? Nope. You gonna be perfect? Nope. Can you still be a victor? Yes. Look to Jesus. When he calls, listen, hear, and repent. That's all he's asking. And then you do it again the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Do we want to know the Bible? Absolutely. Are we going to fall short? Yeah. Are we going to lack discernment at times? Yeah, we're going to make mistakes. Are we going to be short in our love? Are there going to be times when we have to repent and say, God, I'm so sorry, I really don't love this person like I should. Yep. But when we repent, we hear Jesus. That is the victorious Christian life. And that's true for all these churches. Not one of these churches does he say, well, you guys, you can't be the victor. You can't ultimately have eternal life. He offers repentance to each one that has a problem. No matter what our problem is, whether it's diff- this, just like this church or whether it's different, we can know Christ and in the end be victorious because of Christ. Because of Christ correcting us. Because of Christ dying for us. Because of Christ helping us. That's good news. We don't want to settle in and think we've got it all figured out and we're ready to go forever. Nope. We're gonna, we're gonna keep repenting. Do we want to have truth and love? Absolutely. And when we don't, when we, when God shows us or calls us out, we just say, Hey, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please help me going forward. Please forgive me. Wash me by your blood. We want to be prepared for heaven and we can be by repentance. Repentance. Now, does that mean that these other things don't matter? What he's saying here, these corrections and these commendations? No, they do matter. They do, they still matter. And so, 
Let's just ask some questions and examine, ask the Lord to help us. Do I know the Bible well enough to discern error? If, if Christ wrote me a letter, would he, would he say, you're really diligent in discerning truth and error and you, you search the scriptures. Could, could Christ save you something like Acts 17? These Jews were more noble than the, the Thessalonians. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. You know, the, the Bergians. One of the things this church did well, we want to, we want to emulate. We want to know our Bibles. We want to be able to apply them to things going on in the, in the world around us. That's a good thing. Christ can help us. And where we fall short, we just ask for forgiveness. Ask for help going forward. What about love? He said they're not doing the works they did at first. They don't have the love they had at first. Is there anything in your walk with the Lord where looking back, it's like, man, I've grown cold here where I used to be warm. Are the things I was doing when I first became a Christian I'm not doing anymore? I mean, prayer meetings could be an example. Just giving one out. It's like, we want people to come to prayer meetings. We want to pray. Um, we want to be people of prayer. We want to, really, what fuels the desire to come to prayer meeting? Well, couldn't we say love to God and love to neighbor? I mean, don't we want to spend time talking to the Lord and knowing Him, communing with Him? He's right here among us. He's among the lampstands, so we want to meet with Him. But also, not only that, but love to neighbor. Right? We want to bear one another's burdens. We want to pray for the people in our church, but also the community. And though those things are important. And so it's like, if it, there's a simple solution, we can just admit and we can just say, hey, I've grown cold here. If I'm honest, I don't really want to pray. I don't really feel like praying for these people. And we can just ask God, admit it. Hey God, would you please forgive me and help me? He will. I feel like for me personally in my life, one of the things that has helped me the most in terms of love is just basically praying all the, praying about the times where I don't. Like that's been probably the biggest help to me in terms of love is just somebody shares a prayer request and if I'm honest in my heart, I don't care that much. I know it's hard on them. I know that they're going through difficult things. But if, if I'm really, really honest, I'm kind of indifferent. And I might put on my prayer list, but in my heart, am I praying for them like I would my kid going through the same situation? Not even a fraction. And then just being honest with God about it. God, I've got this written down. I know it's important and I know they're going through a lot. If I'm really honest, it's just, I'm just going through the motions right now. Would you help me to really love them? And I feel like for me personally, that's what's helped me. It's just saying, I'm sorry, help me. I'm sorry, help me. And I I know that Christ has promised to help us, hasn't He? As we do that, you find that that love is stirred, right? Even maybe right in that moment or maybe later on, but often in the moment, it's like God, there's a spark there and God helps you to pray with reality and, and with love. Um, not perfect love, with, but some more reality. Okay. They did the works that they were diligent to do the works, but then the heart was kind of missing. It was missing, whether that's towards other people or towards God. So we could ask ourselves this reflection question. Has my love become just a diligent habit I know I should do? Right? Am I going through the motions? Things I once did with my whole heart, I'm just doing out of habit now. We can just ask the Lord that. And where there are those things, Ask Him for help and say, God, I used to be in tears singing the songs because they meant so much thinking about you, thinking about who you are, thinking about what you've done for me. And now I come and I just kind of, I sing the words. I don't, they don't even cross my mind what it's really talking about. If that's the case, and I, at least I can say it for me, that happens often where it's like, wow, I just sang that song, but I wasn't engaged. I wasn't thinking. I was looking over to see what the kids are doing or, or I was thinking about something else. What, what's going to happen later today? My, something I need to, oh, I can't forget to do this. And then just say, God, help me. Would you help me to engage? Would you help me to worship from my whole heart? We want, we don't want our ought to, things we ought to do, 
be just that. If, if, if our ought to's aren't things we want to, we can just confess that to the Lord and ask for help. Acknowledge it. And He's there to help. I mean, another example could be something like even praying for meals. I know our family, we pray for meals. God, thank you for this food. It can be easy to pray that same thing over and over and over, word for word almost. Just, I find myself realizing there's times where I just have to say, God, I don't want to just do this out of habit. I want to really be thankful. Would you help me? There's a lot to be thankful for. And this is the good news. I mean, imagine if this wasn't the case. Imagine if Christ said in this letter, I'm not going to be among you guys. Just keep pressing on. That would be hard. <laughs> Instead, he's saying the opposite. He's saying, I'm right there walking among you. I want this relation, this love relationship with you. And if it's growing cold, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to encourage that again. This isn't just all these ought to's and all the things you need to know. It's like, I'm a person right there with you. Do you love me? Are you still meeting with me as your Lord, your Savior, your brother, the bridegroom, all these, the Father, look at Christ isn't the Father, but the, we pray to the Father. All these examples of love relationships that God's giving. We don't want to lose that. We don't want it to be, to grow cold. Okay, last five. This is the final reflection question. They were doing a lot of things. They were diligent in, in working. But Christ is saying, but there's some works you're not doing that you did at first. You're not loving. You're not... We could say this. Are there? Is there anything in my life you may be diligent and you're hardworking, you're doing all these things, but are there some big things we're missing? Sometimes indifferent things, sometimes good things can crowd out the biggest things. So here's a question, reflection question to ask about your, you could do it for a day or your week, your weekly schedule. And you could think about all the things that kind of go in and fill up your, your time. We're busy, right? We're a busy culture. And instead of asking, is this sin or is this not sin? Which is, they were good at asking that. Like, if this is sin, I'm not going to do it. And yet still, somehow the biggest things got crowded out. This love relationship with God. So we could ask this. Not, not, is this sin or not sin, but does this stir my affections for Jesus or not? Because there can be good things. That crowd out the biggest things. We could be diligent to, to keep out these sinful pressures and yet even good things squeeze out this love relationship with Christ. That's different, right? It's different just to say, is this a sin or not? To say, does this stir my affections for Jesus? And I think we can ask the Lord to help us, right? If there's things looking back where we're in, in our life when we first became a Christian, where we were passionate, when there were, where was this vibrant love relationship? What what were we doing there that we've that maybe not on purpose, but throughout the course of life has dropped off? And go back there and say, God, would you help me to do this again? Would you help me to come to prayer meeting again and really want to be there? Would you help me to? Spend time on my knees in prayer in the morning, not just a rush prayer when I go out the door. Um, whatever it is, I, it's each individual. Like you just pray about it and ask the Lord to help you. And so we can be thankful though, right? I don't want anyone to feel like, well, yeah, I'm real a failure. Well, the reality is we can all be victors, right? You want to be a conqueror who eats from the tree of, the, of life? Just listen to God. Repent when he comes to you and, 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 and convicts you. That's simple. Trust him. Listen to his voice. And he's there for you. The victory is not for perfect people. It's for repenting people. And we might today think, oh, I want this to be different and God will help us. 
And then a year from now, we do it all over again. God, help me in this area. And so this is the one particular piece that I want us to think about in terms of the victorious Christian life and reframe our thinking. So let's pray. Father, we do need help. And we don't want to be neglecting anything you've had called us to do. But we aren't sufficient. And so we need you. We're asking you to be near to us. Help us by your Spirit. Would you show us any areas in our life where any of these things apply and help us going forward? I pray you'd forgive us. Uh, I think we can all confess that we, we don't love you like we want to. We want to love you more. Forgive us for a lack of love towards you each day, um, a lack of thankfulness and worship. We want more. Um, would you fill our hearts with love to you? And same for love with people. We just confess we don't love people the way we, we ought to and we want to. And so we're asking forgive us every time we fall short, every time we've fallen short in the past. Help us going forward. Um, help us to love each person we come in contact with, whether that's people we know individually or just distant things that we hear about and are concerned about. Would you help us to be a church and individuals filled with love for others? I pray you give wisdom and help. I pray you give encouragement. Um, we want to press on and we want to know you and we need your help. Thank you that you're among us. Thank you that you're walking and you're holding us and you're in control. And so we're looking to you to guide us and to be near to us. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.